stuff with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I am your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm a senior writer here with HowStuffWorks.com. And today we're going to continue our story about Intel, a very important company in the history of Silicon Valley and electronics and computing in general. Now, in our last episode, we really focused on the origins of Intel and traced it all the way back to the birth of the semiconductor industry itself. Uh, two of the co-founders of Intel, Gordon Moore and uh, and Rob Noyce, they had come from a, a, a an organization that didn't treat them very well. And so they, along with six other people, left that organization. They became known as the Traitorous Eight and founded the Fairchild Semiconductor business under the umbrella of a larger company that did camera and instrumentation work. Worked there for about 11 years before they left that company to co-found Intel. And in our last episode, I ended right around the time that they had introduced their first microprocessor, the 4004. Now we're going to pick up from that point forward. We're also going to backtrack a little bit just to explain some other details. And we're going to explore what Intel was all about uh, since its founding up into present day. Now, the 4004 started off as one of a set of four chips. It was like a package of four chips that were designed specifically for another company. That company was the Nippon Calculating Machine Corporation. Now, the original designation for those four chips was the MCS-4. Along with that 404 or 4004, I should say, chip were three others, right? You had a chip that was a read-only memory chip or ROM chip that was responsible for storing the custom applications for calculating machines. So essentially the programs of these calculating machines were stored in read-only memory. That meant that you could not write over that information. It was always going to be there. It was hard-coded onto the chip itself. And that way it made it efficient and reliable and you didn't have to worry about accidentally erasing it. There also was a random access memory chip or RAM chip. Random access memory allows you to store data in a temporary storage space so that way the processor can call upon that data quickly without having to search a deeper storage uh, solution. The fourth chip was a shift register chip, and that was handling the input-output port. So taking in the information from the input devices and being able to translate that into whatever the commands were for the CPU to process. Now, it was the CPU that really ended up changing everything. So Intel designed the CPU as sort of a general-purpose programmable processor. Now, it wasn't a true general-purpose processor yet. That wouldn't come until a little bit later. But it showed the promise of this strategy. Uh, it wasn't locked into a single practical application. So up until the early 1970s, hardware for computing machines was heavily customized for each specific machine. In other words, the chips you would find in one type of computer were completely incompatible with every other type of computer. To design the processor for these machines, you essentially had to go back to the beginning and rebuild the wheel every single time you wanted to do it. 
there wasn't really a concept of a general purpose processor the way the 4004 was. And the concept of plug and play would be decades further into the future. Intel's move to create this programmable processor allowed for an explosion in various uses. So the 4004 would provide the foundation for Intel's future chips, which then would become an instrumental component in countless types of technology, not just computers or calculators. It virtually guaranteed Intel's success in the market. Beyond that, the processor was able to take advantage of the advances in miniaturization that had followed the invention of the transistor. Now, you'll remember from part one of this series that Gordon Moore, the one of the co-founders of Intel, he was the guy who came up with what we now call Moore's Law. He had made an observation that observation would become Moore's Law. But the observation said that the balance of technology economics and manufacturing processes would mean that for the foreseeable future, and remember he made this prediction back in 1965, the number of discrete elements on microprocessors, on semiconductor chips, would double every two years or so. So if you were to get a semiconductor chip in 1967, it would have twice the number of transistors that you would have found on a tra- on a semiconductor in 1965. The ones in 1969 would have twice as many as the ones from 1967, and so on. Now, by the time Intel was ready to produce the 4004 chip, they could make a single CPU microprocessor that was as powerful as the famous ENIAC computer. Now, the ENIAC computer was one of the first electronic computers ever in the history of mankind. Uh, It was constructed in the 40s. It came online more or less in 45, 46. And at the time, it was one of it was really the most powerful electronic computer in existence. It was one of the first ones. So obviously it didn't have a whole lot of competition, but it took up an entire room It had a lot of very large components that generated a ton of heat. It used vacuum tubes instead of transistors. But uh, for this supercomputer of the early days, uh, it would take up an entire room. Well, Intel's first microprocessor chip had the equivalent amount of power stored on a, a, a chip of semiconductor material that was the size of your fingernail. So you went from a device that took up the entire room in a building, and it was a big room, it wasn't like a little office, to something that could fit on your fingernail with the equivalent amount of processing power. This was a transformational moment in computer history. And one of these days, I'll do a full episode about the ENIAC computer and also how it came to be and the people who worked on it. Uh, It was a fascinating device all on its own. In the decade that it was in operation, from around 1945 to 1955, researchers estimate that it ran more calculations during that 10-year period than all the calculations that had been performed by humans leading up to that moment. So in 10 years, it did more calculations than all of humans had done throughout history leading up to the, the creation of the ENIAC. That is incredible. But then it ended up dying after it was struck by lightning. So it has a tragic end to that story, which also means it would make a great subject for a podcast in the future. I I think 
that maybe Thor got a little miffed that we humans were getting really confident. And so he kind of nipped it in the bud. But that's another story. Let's get back to Intel. Now, if you want to know what the clock speed was of the 4004, its initial speed was 108 kilohertz. Now, clock speeds, in case you aren't aware, they're measured in hertz, and it's a measure of how many clock cycles a CPU can perform in a second. So 108 kilohertz clock speed means that the processor can perform 108,000 clock cycles every second. In an ideal world, every single individual instruction sent to a processor takes up one clock cycle. So you could translate this as saying, this processor was capable of completing 108,000 instructions every second. That's not exactly true because not all instructions take a single clock cycle and efficiency makes a big difference, but it gives you a general idea of the capabilities of this microprocessor. Now, really, when you get down to it, everything that a processor does takes up a certain number of clock cycles, and it depends on what the processor needs to do. But it tells you there's a physical limit to the number of tasks a processor can complete within a given amount of time. So a second in this case. If you are throwing stuff at the processor that takes fewer clock cycles than what it is capable of doing, things should run pretty smoothly, right? If the number of instructions you're sending to the processor is less than the processor's clock speed, it should be a pretty smooth experience for you on the user side of the computer. But as you start to throw more processor-hungry tasks at the chip, you can start to slow down because you might be throwing more directions per second than it can handle. And then you start getting lag and things get jittery and slow. There are a lot of other factors that affect this as well, including how efficient that processor is. Some processors are more efficient and can do the same task with fewer clock cycles than a similar processor. So if you get two different processors and they have similar clock speeds, but one of them is designed and optimized so that it's much more efficient, you can do more with that processor than you can with the other one, even if they're both rated at the same clock speed, just because the other one handles tasks more efficiently than its, uh, than its peer. This is true even if you have two processors that have different clock speeds. If you've got one processor that has a measurably faster clock speed than your first one, but the first one is still more efficient, you can still end up having a better experience using the quote-unquote slower microprocessor because it is more efficient in its design. So that's something to keep in mind if you're ever shopping for microprocessors. Just looking for that clock speed is not really an indicator of how good that microprocessor is. It is an indicator, but is not the only one you should pay attention to. It's kind of like when you go shopping for digital cameras and you start looking at megapixel numbers. Larger megapixel numbers doesn't necessarily equate with better pictures. There are a lot of other factors that are very important when it comes to color representation, contrast, all of these other elements that go into creating digital images. 
So I just want to bring that out here in this part of the podcast, just in case you are looking at building a computer and you want to find a really good microprocessor. Just going for that high number is not a guarantee that you're getting the absolute best for your money. You have to take these other elements into consideration. Uh, so I know it's a bit of a tangent, but it's important to remember uh, just because otherwise we oversimplify and say a higher clock speed equals a faster, better processor. That's not always the case. Uh, anyway, back in 1971, 108 kilohertz was wicked fast. That was a really fast processing time. Today, something like Intel's Core i7 KB Lake processor can run at four and a half gigahertz. That means it can run four and a half billion clock cycles per second. It can handle four and a half billion instructions per second. Compare that to the 4004 that was 108,000, four and a half billion. You start to see the power of Moore's law, how that plays out over time. And being able to go into the billions of instructions per second would probably have amazed even Gordon Moore back in the day. Because when he was making this observation, he didn't necessarily think this would be sustainable indefinitely. He thought that eventually we would run into some sort of fundamental limit as to what we are able to accomplish. And at that point, the actual progression would break down and you would no longer be able to have a processor that's effectively twice as powerful two years into the future uh, because we would have bumped up against some sort of fundamental limit that would prevent us from doing that. Now, for the 4004, Intel was using two-inch wafers, which is interesting because typically semiconductor companies were using 12-inch wafers to design microchips. But Intel was using two-inch wafers for this one. And uh, that might sound delicious. You're hearing wafer. You might be thinking, ooh, cookies. Uh, it's not. The wafer is called that because it's a big circular disk. Or in the case of the 4004, they were using small circular disks. Uh, but a wafer is a substrate. It's a foundation. It is the ground upon which you build a processor or you build a circuit. It's made of semiconductor material. Uh, it's frequently silicon. These days, it's more often silicon than anything else. But there are other types of semiconductor material. So I don't want you thinking silicon is the one and only type. There are others. Silicon uh, wafers are usually 12 inches in diameter, not two inches in diameter. So this was a, a bit of a departure. But you have to imagine a really shiny disk that has like a, a grid-like pattern across it that's repeated over and over and over again. Uh, the patterns that you see, that's actually the patterns of where circuits will be laid. So it's not just a design. That's actually the physical architecture of where the circuits are going to be. They don't just come out that way. They have to be etched that way. When you first create these silicon wafers and you and you get them polished, they are just uh, reflective. They don't have any grid-like patterns on them. Now, for the geometrically minded out there, you might wonder why the heck would you produce round silicon wafers when microprocessors are rectangular? Now, obviously, you can build a bunch of microprocessors on top of a wafer and then you cut them out. So you use your wafer to be the the foundation for all of your microprocessors. You you etch it out 
using a repeated pattern over and over again. You build out the microprocessors, then you cut them all out and you get your little dies of, uh, of CPU chips or other microchips. It doesn't have to be just a CPU. Other microchips also follow this pattern. But you're thinking, well, if it's round and ultimately the chips are square, that means there's a lot of waste, right? Like you start to get where the edges of the the individual microprocessors are coming up against the edge of the disk. Well, square and circle, they're not going to match up perfectly. So you're going to have some wasted material. Why would you go with a disk in the first place? Well, in order to answer this question, I'm going to have to talk about how these chips are made today for the most part. But remember that the process back when Intel made its 4004 chip was similar, but not nearly as sophisticated as the way we do it today. Um, the microprocessor manufacturers cut wafers up to make several microprocessors per wafer, but that does create some waste. So here's why we have round wafers instead of, say, square wafers. It's because we grow the wafers. And it's done in a very interesting way. So imagine that your goal is to create a sheet of silicon that's perfect for a microprocessor. That means you have to have an incredible amount of pure silicon or as close to pure silicon as you can possibly manage. Any sort of impurity will introduce uh, electrical elements into your substrate that you don't want because that's going to create errors. So you need it to be as pure as you possibly can make it. You then treat it to allow transistors and other components to transmit electricity across the circuit without having it bleed through or leach away the substrate. Because silicon is a semiconductor and can either conduct or insulate based on properties, it is ideal for this. And we start with sand. Sand has a very high percentage of silicon in it. And again, silicon is our semiconductor material of choice. The sand gets melted down, and then you eventually end up with a material called poly or polysilicon. And you use this to, um, you separate out as much of the impurities as you possibly can till you get to 99.99% pure silicon. You melt down ingots of this stuff into a purged furnace at a temperature of more than 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit, which is more than 1,370 degrees centigrade. The furnace must be purged with argon gas to make certain there's no unintended impurities present. You want to make sure that you've gotten rid of anything that could end up affecting the silicon as you try to create a wafer. Now, at this point, there's about one non-silicon atom per billion silicon atoms. So that's incredibly pure. You get a billion silicon atoms and then one thing that is not silicon that's pretty pure. You then have all of this molten silicon inside a crucible, which is like a, a giant uh, cylindrical column, and it keeps that molten silicon nice and hot. The crucible starts to spin in a given direction. For the purposes of this discussion, we'll say it's spinning Wittershins, also known as counter or anti-clockwise. So it's spinning anti-clockwise. You then insert a seed crystal of silicon. It's about the size and shape of a pencil. 
and you put this, it's lowered down by machine into the molten silicon and it acts as sort of a nucleic spot for other silicon crystals to form. And this way you get a, uh, a, a very regular crystalline structure, a mono crystalline structure of silicon. And this seed will turn in the opposite direction of the crucible. So in our example, it would turn clockwise while the crucible turns counterclockwise. Now, as this happens, you end up creating this column, this cylindrical column of pure silicon or mostly pure silicon. Uh, and you get that monocrystalline structure all the way throughout the entire thing. When you withdraw the cooled silicon from the crucible, it looks like a giant silicon log that tapers at an end because that's where you've been pulling the seed crystal out, where you've been very slowly drawing it upwards. You, you draw it incredibly slowly, like a millimeter and a half per minute. So it's a very, very slow process. You're not just whipping the crystal out of the molten silicon. Doing this ends up creating, like I said, a tapered column. And the silicon has great tensile strength, meaning you can suspend it from a thread-like amount of silicon. And even though it weighs between 220 and 440 pounds or between 100 and 200 kilograms, it'll hold. It, however, is very brittle. So while it has great tensile strength, if you were to just try and cut it, it would cut very easily. The column or pole of silicon would be about 12 inches or so in diameter. And you would then use that to slice it into wafers. So imagine this log of silicon and you put it through a device that uses very thin wire cutters or, or wire blades, I guess I should say. They're not cutters. They're, they're blades made of very, very thin wire that then just zoom through this column and chop it up into these very thin wafers. They're about a millimeter thick. And you can get quite a few out of one column of this silicon material. At that point, you send them to another device to polish them out because the cutting creates uneven sec sections on the surface of the wafers. So you have to polish it to remove as much of that unevenness as you can. But even that's not good enough because when you're building microprocessors, you're working on the micron scale or smaller. These days, you're working on the nano scale. At that scale, even the tiniest of bumps or grooves is going to look like an enormous mountain range or incredible valley. You have to buff it all out and get it as level as you possibly can. So after putting it through the polishing machine, you typically would need to chemically treat the wafers to get them as smooth as they possibly can be. Now, the next step would involve etching the wafers to create the pattern for your circuits. So this is sort of like building the blueprint for the circuits directly onto the substrate itself. Uh, so obviously any sort of flaw in either the silicon material or its physical properties, whether it's the unevenness or maybe there's uh, an impurity that has fallen down and touched the wafer, 
It's enormous when you get down to that scale. So the tiniest of imperfections can completely ruin a chip. For etching, Intel uses a light-sensitive layer called photoresist and coats the surface of the wafer. Uh, now, that's essentially an etch-resistant material. Anything that, uh, that encounters it is going to resist being etched. And they let this layer harden, and then they use other little stencil-like devices called masks. Uh, the masks cover parts of the chip while allowing other parts of the chip, or rather, I should say, cover parts of the wafer and allow other parts of the wafer uh, to be exposed. You then use ultraviolet light, which turns the photoresist material it encounters soluble. And through the process of building a circuit, you have to use lots and lots of different masks, essentially lots of different stencils, and lots of applications of this ultraviolet light because circuits are really three-dimensional creations. They're not just two-dimensional. They're not just width and, and height. There's also depth to them. So you use a sequence of these masks and you expose the wafer to ultraviolet light. Each time the ultraviolet light hits through the mask and contacts the photoresistive layer below, it makes it soluble. You then treat the wafer with a chemical that removes all the soluble material so that you're left with everything else. You've etched away all the stuff you do not want. All the stuff you do want remains on the wafer. That is the blueprint for your circuit at that point. Then you would uh, implant some ions, which are charged particles. They can have either a positive or a negative charge, depending upon the application you need them to be. You would either put in positive ions or negative ions. But you use that uh, in the silicon itself. This is called doping. This is used in semiconductors all the time to specifically dictate how the semiconductor performs under specific circumstances. While you're etching, you're creating channels for what will become transistors. The transistors themselves must be deposited into the channels. And today, Intel uses a method called atomic layer deposition to apply materials to the wafer surface at a level of precision necessary for components on the nanoscale. Because at that scale, you're talking about something so small you can't even see it with an optical microscope. You would need a scanning electron microscope or something similar in order to even get a look at it. So obviously you have to have atomic precision with this. Intel also uses electroplating to deposit copper ions onto the transistor. And if you listen to my History of Electricity episodes, you'll hear more about electroplating and how that works. Now, since the individual components on microprocessors now measure in the nanometers, it's critical that from this point forward, all potential contaminants have to be eliminated from the fabrication area. That means anyone working within the environment has to wear a special suit, often called a bunny suit, to eliminate the possibility of dust, skin, or hair getting into the environment. Also, they tend to have very powerful air conditioning systems, which are circulating and filtering the air on a very frequent basis. Uh, Intel, their setup has air coming in from the ceiling. Vents in the ceiling allow air to come down, and then vents on the floor pull air away. And it does this constantly. So you're constantly circulating and filtering the air to remove any potential pollutants that could ruin a microprocessor. This is what gives us the term clean room 
And the clean rooms in semiconductor facilities tend to be a class one clean room, meaning they're more free of pollutants than even the most advanced hospitals are. So extremely clean environments. Uh, obviously, all the equipment that's being used has to be absolutely spotless because, again, you introduce a tiny impurity and you ruin a microchip or worse yet, you might ruin an entire wafer, which means all of the microchips that would have been produced on that wafer are a loss. You, you'd have to throw them out. From the beginning, Intel had to work on ways to design, miniaturize, and imprint circuit layouts onto silicon. And this continues to be an engineering challenge as companies like Intel attempt to keep up with the observations Gordon Moore made decades ago. The individual transistors are acting like switches. So they either complete a circuit and allow electrons to move through, or they break a circuit and they keep electrons from moving through. And they're turned on and off by these devices called gates. So a gate's either open or it's closed. And uh, that tells you, you know, essentially that these microprocessors, ultimately their job is traffic management. They're managing the movement of electrons because they represent single pieces of information, either a zero or a one, an off or an on, a no or a yes. And collectively, when you get lots of these dull pieces of information, you can describe much more complex concepts than just on or off. And uh, that's where you get into the very basics of computer science. So all of this, these different components have to be etched onto the silicon. And that's because in the later stages of manufacturing, the individual elements of the microprocessor have to be deposited on the wafer. There can be up to 30 layers of of uh, material put onto a wafer before it becomes a chip. And each incredibly tiny element needs to be in its proper place. And these days, chip manufacturers use a variation of lithography to essentially print the components onto the circuit etchings to build the microprocessor layer by layer. It is incredibly precise and difficult to imagine. But we'll talk more about that a little bit later on. First, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Back to the 4004. It had an impressive number of transistors for the time. It had about 2,300 transistors on this one chip. Uh, the microprocessors of today leave this processor behind in the dust that doesn't exist in those clean rooms I just talked about. So, for example, the Broadwell E family of Intel processors, which is actually from a couple of generations back, well, they launched in 2016 and have a transistor count of about 3.4 billion. So we went from 2,300 way back in 1971 to 3.4 billion in 2016. So, yeah, Moore's Law is no joke. While today's chips have components that can measure just a smidge more than a dozen nanometers in width, the 4004's circuit line was 10 microns wide, or 10,000 nanometers. So the transistors of 1971 measured about 10,000 nanometers wide. Today, it's more like 14 if you're getting a top-of-the-line processor. 14 nanometers instead of 10,000. 
Uh, if you're wondering exactly how much that is, because it's still kind of hard to imagine even like 10,000 nanometers, how wide is that? Well, that's one-tenth the width of your typical human hair. Human hair tends to be around 100,000 nanometers wide. Not long, wide. Or at least so I'm told. I have to take a lot about hair on faith these days. I miss having hair. Well, the 4004 launched and changed the world of electronics and computers. In 1972, Intel would expand, opening up an assembly plant in Penang, Malaysia. This was Intel's first international manufacturing facility. Intel also acquired a company called Microma, which was experimenting with a new technology themselves. They were offering up digital watches that had liquid crystal displays. This was pretty new in the early 70s. So Intel got into the wearables business just a couple of years after it was founded. And people would think, oh, I thought Intel got into the wearables business pretty recently with providing chips that could be found in lots of different types of uh, products out there. Now, as it turns out, this early attempt to get into wearables didn't really pan out for Intel. Uh, Intel held on to Microma for about six years, but they found that they had real trouble meeting consumer expectations and figuring out exactly what consumers wanted because Intel was not a consumer electronics company. Intel was building products for other businesses. So Intel would create a processor that some other computer manufacturer would use in its products. Intel wasn't building stuff specifically for the end consumer. And as a result, they weren't really good at running Microma as a business. They held on to it for about six years, and then they sold it for a big loss. They lost about $15 million on it. They they sold it for less than what they bought it. So it was a, a tough lesson for Intel in those early days. Jumping back to 1972 again, Intel created the first 8-bit microprocessor, also known as the 8008. Now, this one obviously was more powerful than the 4004, but it still wouldn't really transform the world. It wouldn't be until 1974 when the company introduced the 8080 or the 8080. This was the first true general-purpose microprocessor. So the 4004 and the 8008 had laid the groundwork for the 8080, but it was this 8080 that would become the basis for microprocessors in everything from computers and calculators to traffic lights because it was a true general purpose processor that could be used for all sorts of different applications. So we often think of Intel as the company that makes the processors in computers. But the truth is they make processors that are in all sorts of different gadgets and devices and products, not just computers and phones. This uh, made Intel one of the most competitive companies in the space. They offered up a computing solution in a small package for an aggressive price. And as a result, Intel became the global leader in microchips and held on to that title for a while. The cost of the 8080 was just $360, which, you know, they were, Intel was saying, this is a computer on a chip. You get all the power of a computer on a single chip that can be incorporated into lots of different applications and it's 360 bucks which was much cheaper than full computer systems so intel was doing really really well in these days it was also dominant in the area of memory chips at the time 
So remember, Intel had started by making chips that were for memory, not for processing. By the end of 1974, Intel held 82.9% of the DRAM chip market. Now, this would change over the next decade because other companies would get involved in making memory chips and the competition got really fierce. And once you get a ton of different companies all competing with each other, making the same stuff, you'll see that uh, your, your market share will start to drop over time unless you're making crazy deals by undercutting your competition. So by 1984, a decade later, Intel's share in the DRAM market would have dropped all the way down to 1.3%. But while that memory chip business had become incredibly competitive, Intel was still dominant in the microprocessor market. So it wasn't as big a deal, even though their memory chip business was leaking away over time, or at least was getting... uh was being less dominant in the market over time to the point where they had dropped down to 1.3% within a decade. Because they were the definitive name in microprocessors, it more than balanced out. They were able to recapture a lot of that success with the microprocessors. In 1975, Robert Noyce, who was, again, one of the co-founders, became the chairman of the board at Intel. Noyce was known as an executive who eschewed the lavish trappings that many CEOs and chairpersons have indulged in. He remained in leadership positions at Intel until his retirement, which must not have suited him very well because after he retired, he then went on to become the leader of a semiconductor manufacturing consortium called Sematech. And Noyce would pass away in 1990 at the age of 62. His leadership style would remain a very powerful influence at Intel. It became sort of the model of how leaders were expected to behave over at Intel, largely that you were supposed to have kind of a let's get to work sort of attitude and not have too many lavish trappings of the executive's life. Uh, the idea being that everyone should benefit, not just whomever's at the top. Uh, I don't know if that's how Intel's culture is now. I haven't ever been at Intel's corporate headquarters, but I know for a long time uh, his values specifically were upheld as the model for future Intel executives. Now, as you might imagine, Intel's line of processors became more powerful with every generation and stuck pretty close to Gordon Moore's predictions. The processor's power tended to double every two years or so. In 1978, Intel introduced the 16-bit 8086 the 8086 could work on two 8-bit instruction sets simultaneously, so it had a parallel processing component in it. However, at the time, most software relied on 8-bit processors and couldn't take advantage of this 16-bit capability. So it was almost like it was future-proofed, that the software that was out wasn't really able to enjoy the benefit of this 16-bit processor at the time. However, there's a generally held belief that's been proven true multiple times that if you build a really super strong processor, it does not take long before someone figures out a way to take advantage of that, to build the software that makes the best use or at least takes up a great deal of that new super fast processor's abilities. Uh, in fact, you can get to a point where software bloat outpaces processor performance. So it feels like generation over generation, your processors are getting slower, but that's not really the case. It's just that software is getting more bloated. Uh, sometimes it's a combination of the two, actually. Well, 
By this time, Intel was starting to face competition with Motorola, which had introduced its own line of microprocessors in a line known as the 68000. This was the type of microprocessors that would end up being used in Apple products for a very long time. Motorola was the big uh, provider of microprocessors for Apple for many years. There was a race to see which microprocessor architecture would end up becoming the industry standard, which one is going to be used in personal computers the most. And a big, juicy contract helped assure that space for Intel. The contract came from International Business Machines Corporation, which is better known as IBM. IBM chose the 8-bit processor from Intel called the 8088 to be the processor of choice in the official IBM personal computer line. The 8088 was based off the design of the 8086, the 16-bit processor. But the 88 was an 8-bit processor. So essentially, the 8088 had half of the address bus disabled to make it an 8-bit processor. Eventually, the pairing of Intel chips with the Windows operating system a few years down the line would lead to the nickname Wintel for IBM-compatible machines, And it just showed that Intel was considered a standard part of the IBM-compatible universe. You had an Intel processor, and you had the Windows operating system. If you didn't have those things, people didn't really think of it as a PC. They thought of it as something else, uh, which is a little weird. But that just goes to show that, you know, Intel had made some very savvy moves to become indispensable in the personal computing industry, which ended up taking off like gangbusters in the 80s. Now, around this time, Intel also introduced a new innovation in computing called coprocessors. Now, these were chips designed to take on certain tasks that typically would go to the computer's CPU. But by freeing up the CPU from doing those little tasks, they could run software more efficiently. They could concentrate on the harder computational problems, and these coprocessors would free up the CPUs by taking on those more mundane tasks because they were very specialized microprocessor chips and they were very efficient at handling very specific types of computer problems. This kept the chips efficient and kept their price down, and it also opened up a new market for Intel to dominate. The company was really growing rapidly at this time. Back when it was founded, Intel had a grand total of 12 employees. But by 1980, that number had grown to more than 15,000 employees. Intel's founders tried hard to avoid falling into the same traps they had encountered over at Fairchild Semiconductor. They were really striving to have open communication between executives and everybody else. They wanted to make sure that their plans were transparent, that everyone knew which way the the company was going, and that people's concerns were listened to because the founders of Intel had come from an environment where they felt like they weren't being listened to and they didn't want Intel to turn into the same sort of thing. But obviously, that becomes a challenge when your workforce numbers in the thousands of employees. So it was not an easy thing for Intel to try and do. Now, if you remember my podcast about the story of Macintosh, you know I don't like to focus on every single product that a company offers because it just bogs down the show. With Intel, it's particularly important I don't do that because the company has has had dozens of different microprocessors in its history and hundreds of other types of products. 
So we're going to focus on a few important highlights rather than a rundown of all the chips. Now, I don't want to be here for a week going over an impressive but exhaustive list of specs. I do want to talk about some of the important early processors, though, because I think it's it, it shows Intel's strategy and also some of the mistakes the company has made over its years. The first one I would like to talk about is the 8186, which followed a 16-bit architecture. It was based off that 8086 line from before. Starting with the 8186, Intel began to incorporate components in the microprocessor that would normally be independent on a computer's motherboard. So in other words, Intel was looking at different parts of the motherboard and saying, well, we can lump this in with the CPU. We can increase the response of the CPU. We can make it more efficient. We can decrease latency. And as a result, the entire computing experience goes faster. This does not necessarily mean the CPU itself is clocking faster. It's just, again, making that architecture more efficient. So that was Intel's strategy. The integration made sense. It made the CPUs more efficient, made the computers much more fast. And later that same year, Intel would release the 8286. And at this point, we would just call it the 286. We would also end up calling the next two computers the 386 and the 486. Uh, they were all from the same kind of family of microprocessors. There were obviously changes and redesigns with each generation, but they were all based off that same 8086 architecture. In 1984, Intel created its first reduced instruction set computer, or RISC microprocessor. These are more specialized processors that concentrate on a relatively narrow band of computer instructions, which means it can go really fast as long as the instructions sent to it are within that narrow band. It's kind of like a bureaucracy. Bureaucracies can handle forms that are filled out properly very well. That's what a bureaucracy does. But if you have a case that is outside of the normal line, bureaucracies are terrible because they're not designed to process stuff that's outside the norm. If they can process something that's inside the norm, it should go very fast. Same sort of thing is true with risk microprocessors, except we're talking about computational problems, not licenses and other issues that we would have when we encounter bureaucracies. The first person to theorize a risk microprocessor was John Koch of IBM Research in 1974. And David Patterson, who taught at the University of California at Berkeley, has the credit of coming up with the term. Intel's i960 RISC microprocessors and its descendants would find use in many applications, including military systems. In 1985, the 386 debuted, and it was the first CPU Intel designed to be fully backwards compatible with previous CPUs. This was a design decision that was carried forward into future microprocessors, and it was also Intel's first 32-bit x86 processor. It could support up to 4 gigabytes of system memory, which at the time was a truly enormous amount. Nobody really expected to use 4 gigabytes of memory back in the mid-80s, but the 386 architecture was capable of supporting it. Now, that's not to say that everything Intel touched turned into gold at this time. The company also designed a processor called the IAPX 432. And as you would guess by the name and number, 
This did not follow the same architecture as the X86 chips did. This was meant to expand its product line and differentiate microprocessors by following a brand new architecture, but the design process did not go smoothly. There were lots of flaws that were introduced into the final processor design, and it was a much more complicated design than the 86 line, and it wasn't particularly efficient. So ultimately, Intel would end up shelving the product and saying that this was not a success. Later, in another attempt to break away from the x86 processor line, Intel would introduce the i860 RISC. While the early RISC microprocessors weren't intended to go into personal computers, this was not true of the i860. Unfortunately, like the IAPX432, the microprocessor was flawed. It would stall out when the processor encountered computational problems that were outside its scope. So again, it's like that bureaucracy. When a form doesn't have the right capability of capturing the information you need and you go to the bureaucracy, you're going to get the runaround and it's going to be painful and slow and laborious. Same thing was true with this processor. It could not handle all computational problems efficiently. And that eventually led to it not being a particularly powerful or popular uh, product in Intel's line. But the 486 was a different story. That was the first x86 CPU to incorporate an element called the Functional Processing Unit, or FPU, which until that time had been a separate component from the CPU. This decreased latency between the FPU and CPU, which translated again to faster computing speeds. The first of these were running at clock speeds of 50 megahertz, or 50 million clock cycles per second. Starting in 1991, Intel's ad campaign push made the company's slogan, Intel Inside, a common phrase in computer circles. Intel had a really clever way of convincing computer companies to include Intel chips and to use this phrase, Intel Inside, both in the marketing strategy and on the computers themselves. The way Intel convinced companies to do this is they said, hey, if you include our chips and you include the phrase Intel Inside in your marketing, we will pay for half of your marketing costs. So they would shoulder half of the marketing budget of these companies for print and television ads. That's an enormous amount of money, and Intel spent millions of dollars doing this. But as a result, they were able to essentially guarantee that their name would become synonymous with computers. People thought, well, if I'm buying a computer, a PC at any rate, not a Mac, then it's going to have that Intel Inside sticker on there. It's going to have Intel Inside on all the advertising, and Intel became a household name. So it was a very valuable move on Intel's part. In 1993, Intel introduced the Pentium line of processors. I remember when that happened because it confused me as I was used to 286, 386, 486, and then it went to Pentium. These were still built on the x86 processor architecture, but they did depart from that 86 naming system. They decided to go with more trademark names and less about just numbers. They Part of this was probably to appeal to a larger audience of computer consumers, people who probably didn't really care for referring to processors by what seemed to be meaningless numbers to them. Now, as you can imagine, these chips were more efficient and faster than their predecessors, and this helped usher in an era of PC gaming, among other things. 
The faster processors allowed game developers to create software that was graphically intense and fast-paced. And while games had always been part of personal computer history, ever since personal computers had first come on the scene, they now could rival consoles, which are essentially specific computers designed to run very particular types of software. So a console... A video game console like the Xbox or back in the day of this, the Super Nintendo uh, Nintendo Entertainment System, that's just a specialized computer. But uh, Intel was able to show that with these Pentium processors, personal computers could run games that would rival even the best consoles. But there was a big problem. Those first Pentium chips had a design flaw in them that would cause the microprocessor to make an incorrect calculation for certain processes. Now, this incorrect calculation didn't happen frequently, but it did happen. And while Intel had hoped that perhaps the flaw was so minor as to go unnoticed, that did not happen. The reason it was noticed was due to a mathematician named Thomas Nicely, who was a professor. Nicely was actually working on a math problem involving twin primes. So a twin prime is a set of two prime numbers that differ by just two. So three and five are both prime numbers, and they're twin primes, because five minus three equals two. Five and seven are twin primes. Seven minus five is two. But as numbers get larger, primes become less frequent, and twin primes become even more rare. The philosopher Euclid created a proof that suggested there's an infinite number of prime numbers, and he believed that the same was going to be true of twin primes, but he had no way of proving it. Well, Euclid was thinking that way back in 300 BCE. It wouldn't be until the 20th century before someone came up with a means of describing this mathematically, and that person was Viggo Brun, a Norwegian mathematician. He said that the sum of the reciprocals of twin primes would converge to a constant sum that later on we would call Brun's constant. And in case you're rusty on your mathematical terms, a reciprocal of a number is what you get when you take one and divide it by that number in question. So let's say you start with five. The reciprocal of five is one-fifth because, again, you're looking at the one divided by the number you had started with, or, or point two if you prefer. So Brun figured out that if you took the reciprocals of twin primes and you added the two reciprocals together, they converged on a number that would end up again being called Brun's constant. And by 1976, that constant was calculated to be approximately 1.9021605 for twin primes up to 100 billion. But hey, that's not good enough for math. We need to be more specific than that. So enter Thomas Nicely, who bought a computer in 1994 with a Pentium processor, and he wanted to run calculations related to Brune's constant. But as he did so, he was coming up with errors that should not have been there. And he was eventually able to track it down to a design flaw in Intel's chips that only showed up if you were doing some really big calculations. That's when the flaw would make itself apparent, but most people would never see it. At first, Intel tried to shirk this issue, but intense pressure caused the company to change its tune. So eventually, Intel issued a recall, offering a free replacement of the affected Pentium chips 
with a modified chip that corrected this error. And that recall would end up costing Intel $475 million. Ouch. Well, we've got a bit more history of Intel to talk about. But before I wrap all this up, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. In 1997, Intel would debut the Pentium 2. They actually had a slight misstep between the Pentium and the Pentium 2, called the Pentium Pro, that didn't go over so well. But the Pentium 2 was a slightly different story. And Intel also introduced two new product lines of processors, the Celeron and Xeon brands. Now, these were based off of Intel's existing architecture, but they had very specific uh, implementations where some of the bells and whistles weren't present on them. This allowed them to be used for very specific implementations. Like you could have mid-range uh, servers, for example, or lower-priced computers because you had the same sort of processors but with some of the features turned off, essentially, in these more mid-range machines uh, that was Intel's attempt at serving all different levels of the market, not just the premium customers. So later on from that point, Intel introduced the Pentium 3, which would become the first microprocessor to break the one gigahertz clock speed. Intel had been in a race with its competitor AMD to create the first commercial processor that could hit a gigahertz clock speed. And at one point, Intel even had a model of the Pentium 3 that had a processing speed of, or a clock speed, I should say, of 1.13 gigahertz. But that one was unstable. Uh, a, a review found the performance was unstable, and so that one got recalled. But still, gigahertz clock speed meant that it could complete a billion instructions per second under ideal circumstances. By the late 1990s, Intel was starting to get into the business of buying other businesses. It was acquiring other businesses to get into new markets that included wireless communications products, networking components, and controlled chips for specific types of applications, such as the kind you might find in vehicle control systems. And if you listen to my shows about the Macintosh, you know that in 2005, Steve Jobs shocked the tech world when he announced that Mac computers would move away from their traditional CPUs and use Intel CPUs instead. Intel maintained a competitive advantage over others in the space, but this also came at a pretty stiff price. In 2009, the European Union found guilt, uh, Intel guilty of alleged monopolistic actions. In other words, they said that Intel was effectively acting like a monopoly within the European Union. And they hit Intel with a fine that was $1.45 billion. That same year, Intel had to pay its competitor AMD a hefty sum of $1.25 billion as part of a settlement in which AMD had accused Intel of using leverage on computer companies to put Intel products in, instead of other processors into those computers. So essentially, AMD was saying Intel was being anti-competitive and really putting the screws to computer manufacturers saying, you've got to use Intel products and not anyone else. And uh, that is not legal, which is why the lawsuit happened and eventually the two settled. 
Now, I could talk about how every generation of Intel's chips were faster, uh, included more onboard memory, had faster bus speeds, greater clock speeds, lower latency. But we can just sum it up to say the company kept following a strategy that it branded the TikTok strategy. So let me tell you what TikTok it means and and why that has recently changed. So TikTok is a two-part strategy to developing the microprocessors of today, or really yesterday at this point, because again, we're just now beyond TikTok. The tick part involves looking at the architecture you designed on your previous generation of microchips. So you look at that architecture and you look at the the size of it and you decide, how can I shrink down these components to the next smaller size? That is your tick. So you might look at a generation of processors that have 45 nanometer components and your challenge is to figure out how to shrink down that same design so that the components measure 32 nanometers, not 45. And you follow essentially the same blueprint as you did before, only you can cram more stuff into that blueprint because you reduced the size of the individual components. You freed up some space by making everything smaller. However, at these sizes, how those components are arranged matters more and more. So you could just keep shrinking the components down as your research and development allows you to make ever smaller pieces. But that only gets you so far. What you really need to do is figure out how to arrange those new smaller pieces in the ideal configuration to get the most efficient use out of them. And this is the talk step. So in tick, you figure out how to shrink stuff down further. In talk, you figure out how to rearrange these new smaller components so that they work the best way you possibly can make them. So in our example, we would be looking at those 32 nanometer components and figuring out the right architecture to maximize their efficiency. And the TikTok generations of a single family of processors are going to have the same size components. They're just going to have different configurations. The tick is going to be based on the previous generation. The talk is the new architecture to maximize the efficiency of the new sized components. And then your next tick is going to be taking those 32 nanometer components and figuring out how to shrink them down even further, but within the same general architecture as your previous generation. Tick, talk, tick, talk. That was pretty much how Intel ran things uh, for quite a few generations of processors. Now, Intel follows a new strategy. It calls it the process architecture optimize pattern. Others will call this tick, talk, talk. Because again, the first one is shrinking components down to a new smaller size. The second means finding a better architecture for those sized components. And the third one is refining that design even further. So you're staying on the same size of components for three generations in a row. Uh, this means that you don't have to spend so much time trying to figure out how you're going to shrink things down even further as you gradually get closer and closer to a fundamental physical limitation 
that being where quantum physics comes in and doesn't play nicely with your designs anymore. And you get things like electron tunneling, where electrons seem to leak through transistors. And since transistors are meant to control the flow of electrons, this is what we in the computer biz often call a bad thing. It introduces the possibility of errors and miscalculations, and you don't want that in your processor. So it ends up extending the amount of time Intel spends on a specific size of die for their their chips, uh, but it also maximizes the efficiency of that while engineers continue to work on the next breakthrough. One other thing I need to touch on before I conclude is the concept of multi-core processors, because Intel started doing that as well. Intel's work with parallel processing way back in the 90s provided the basis for multi-core processors. Multi-core processors can handle several computational problems simultaneously, which brings the clock speeds to bear on the problems to solve them in parallel rather than in sequence. So one core might be working on one problem. Another core could be working on a separate problem. So dual-core processors, you could do two of these. Quad-core, four, and so on and so forth. And there's also threading as well. You can thread different uh, computational problems. But ultimately, the concept we need to really focus on here is that idea of parallel processing. Because for certain types of computational problems, parallel processing is much, much faster than doing sequential processing, where you're just going down a list of instructions. Even if you make a really, really super fast CPU, if it's tackling a very long list of instructions that could otherwise be divided up, a multi-core processor might be more effective than a very fast single-core CPU. I like to use an analogy whenever I talk about this, and longtime listeners of Tech Stuff are probably familiar with this because I've used it before. But I find it's very helpful if you're trying to understand the difference between a super fast CPU and a fast, but not as crazy fast, multi-core processor. So we're going to imagine a math class. And you've got essentially... 16 kids in this math class, right? Uh, one of those kids is a math genius. She's a prodigy. She's so smart, she can complete any problem in a fraction of the time of any of her other classmates. Her classmates, by the way, are smart. They're, they're not, they're not slow or anything. They're just not geniuses like she is. Now, on any given singular problem, the genius is always going to solve it faster than her her other classmates. They're just never going to be as fast as she is for any one problem. But imagine the teacher hands out a test, and the test has 15 problems on it. So there are 15 problems you have to solve. And there are 16 kids in the class, including the genius. The teacher gives the genius a test that has all 16 or all 15 problems on it. So she has to solve all 15 of those problems as quickly as she can. But he tells the other 15 students, you each will tackle one of these problems. And he assigns them. Student one has problem one. Student two has problem two. And so on, all the way down the 15 problems. And they have 
their job is to complete their problem, their one problem, before the genius can complete all 15 problems. Well, this is sort of what multi-core processors are capable of doing. They divide up problems into different parts, and collectively, they can solve that big problem faster than a really super fast processor could. Nine times out of ten, 99 times out of a 100, 999 times out of a 1,000, those 15 students are going to finish their individual problems before the math genius can work through all 15 on her test. And you might say, well, that's not fair. And I'm like, that's not the point. It's an analogy to explain how multi-core processors work from a kind of high-level approach. It gets a lot more technical than that, obviously. But that's just to explain that for certain types of computational problems, parallel processing is much more effective. Now, there are types of computational problems that cannot be broken into parallel processing. And for those, a super-fast CPU is still more often than not, going to be more effective than a multi-core processor. So it really just depends upon the application. But more and more, we're seeing parallel processing problems being the type that computers tackle. Now, how long will Intel and other microprocessor manufacturers be able to keep Moore's Law alive? Because people are constantly predicting the end to Moore's Law. It has happened numerous times throughout history. From the 80s on, people will say, oh, Moore's Law is coming to an end because it's not physically possible for us to keep up with it. But so far, engineers have been able to stave that off, partly through innovative architectures that don't necessarily increase the number of components by a factor of two, but rather increase the output of the processor by a factor of two every two years. So it requires some reinterpretation of what Moore's Law means. It may mean that you fudge a bit on the amount of time necessary to get to that factor of two. And it might mean reinterpreting it as processing power versus number of discrete elements. But I think the important thing for us as consumers is the performance, not whether the chip actually has twice as many transistors as the one from two years ago. So that is still a battle that's going on today. Uh, it does mean that maybe we'll hit that fundamental limit at some point and we will not be able to continue Moore's Law using traditional microprocessor designs. And then we may need another true revolution in computer processing to create a new means of keeping up with that power output but maybe stepping outside of what a processor is supposed to look like. That's a possibility. Today, Intel's doing pretty well. Uh, as of the recording of this podcast, when I checked, it was its uh, shares were trading at around $35 a share. That puts the market cap value of Intel at about $165 billion. The company made nearly $60 billion in revenue in 2016, which is... Not too bad for a company that was found by a couple of traders. Well done, Moore and Noyce. That wraps up our two-part episode on the story of Intel. Obviously, there's a lot more I could talk about from the various sensors and processors Intel's been developing for all sorts of applications to their partnerships with various companies throughout its history. And maybe in future episodes, I'll touch on some of those. But I thought that it was really important to just kind of hit the high points 
to understand where Intel came from and how it developed over its years. If you guys have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, whether it's a topic I should cover, someone I should have on to interview, a guest co-host who might be able to tackle a specific subject with me, let me know. Send me an email. The address for the show is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or you can drop me a line on Twitter or Facebook. The handle for both of those is techstuffhsw. Remember, you can tune in on Wednesdays and Fridays to see me stream this podcast live. You can watch me record it live, which includes all the ridiculous mistakes I make and when I have to restart. And sometimes I'm chatting with the chat room and just answering questions or shooting the breeze. Go to twitch.tv slash techstuff to see the schedule there and join me sometime, won't you? And in the meantime, I hope you guys have a great week and I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 